Well, we are continuing our journey through the book of Acts, and uh, we're in Acts chapter 20, and I tell you, I'll be very honest with you, when we sat down, myself and Pastor Jared and Pastor Daniel, to decide who gets to preach what chapters, I several times pulled rank as the senior pastor. And I said, okay, that one's mine, that one's mine. And there are no leftovers in the book of Acts. There's no bad chapters there. But, but I cherry-picked the ones that I was particularly enthusiastic about. And Acts chapter 20 is one of those that is just hugely uh, impactful in my life. And in many ways, it gives us the most human portrait we see of Paul in the book of Acts. Paul in Acts 20, is, is a person like us. He's very human. He's very accessible. He's even vulnerable. We're going to see that today. Very human and, frankly, very ordinary. And uh, so we're going to take a look at that. So let's go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. You'll find the book of Acts in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. We're continuing our journey through chapter by chapter the book of Acts. And I think I mentioned last week that uh, Pastor Jared, myself, and Daniel have got together and we've decided what the next series is going to be. I'm not telling you yet. We're going to unveil it at some time in the not-too-distant future. But I'll tell you this. It's going to be a long one. It's going to last the whole year, right? This has been about half a year. And so beginning in February, we're going to go right through. Well, I can't tell you. But anyway, you're going to love it. It's going to be really good. I'm excited about it because it's a deeply challenging passage or passages of Scripture, and uh, it's going to be good stuff. But we're in Acts chapter 20 today, and uh, the future will come to us in uh, time enough. We'll be there. But today, Acts chapter 20. And uh, most of Acts chapter 20, much of it revolves around the very same location that we were back in in Acts chapter 19, Ephesus. We're going to come back to that in just a bit. But before we get there... Paul, let me just show you a map here. Let's see if you can uh, sort of see what's going on. All right, here we are. We are about midway through uh, Paul's third missionary journey. Depending on exactly what you regard as a missionary journey, Paul took three or four. Some people don't regard his final journey to Rome, where he was eventually killed, as a, quote, missionary journey. He was, he was taken there by the Roman authorities to stand trial. And uh, so this is called Paul's third missionary journey, and it begins over here, as most of his journeys do, in and around Jerusalem and Antioch, right? And Paul has traveled from Antioch through what we would call Turkey, but what they called Phrygia and Galatia, right? So the letter to the Galatians was the letter to modern-day Turkey. This is where the seven churches of Revelation are located. And Paul has traveled here by land to Ephesus, right? There's Ephesus, coastal city. We're going to talk more about Ephesus in just a little bit. And uh, you will recall that last week we were in Ephesus. We're going to go back to that in just a bit. But what's happened in the meantime, because when we come to, to Acts chapter 20, we're going to be right next to Ephesus in this little town here called uh, Miletus, just south of Ephesus, also a coastal city. But what's going to happen here in just a few short verses is a grand adventure where Paul is going to sail all the way up to Macedonia, right, in response to a vision that he had received that they needed help in Macedonia. And so he's going to sail to a little town called Thessalonica. He'll stay there for a little while. Eventually, he's going to travel over to Philippi and then down the coast here of uh, the Aegean Sea, the Aegean coastline. And he's going to make his way back, not to Ephesus, but to this little town here of Miletus. And there's an interesting little detail here. Paul is actually not going to go back to Ephesus. 
And Luke tells us, Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that Paul does not go back to Ephesus because he was in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem for the Passover. And he knew, uh, like many of us, if you go to certain towns where there's certain people and certain friends, you're going to get detained, and you think you're going to be there for a week or two, and you end up being there for months, or in Paul's last adventure in Ephesus, he was there for two and a half years. So Paul doesn't actually go up to Ephesus. We're not going to be in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, but he invites the leaders of the church in Ephesus to come just a little south and to meet him in the port city of Miletus. Now, this little adventure here, this adventure here up into the uh, Macedonian coast is covered in the first few verses of Acts chapter 20, and there's really not a lot that goes on here, but I want to read through it just because there's some very difficult names to pronounce, and they, I just want to see if I can do it. <laughs> it's going to be fun. So let's pick it up in Acts chapter 20, verse 1. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. The meat and potatoes of what we're going to look at today doesn't start until about verse 17. But let's just read so that we can sort of keep up with the narrative of where Paul's at and what he's doing. Uh, You will recall in Acts chapter 19, there's been this great big riot in the theater in Ephesus. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Paul has now decided that it's time to leave. And so Acts chapter 20, verse 1 says, After the uproar had ceased... Paul called the disciples to himself, he embraced them, he gave them a hug, and he departed to Macedonia, right? That's where he's going. He's heading up to the Macedonian coast, to Thessalonica and to Philippi. Verse 2, now when he had gone over the region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece, and he stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Here's the names. And... So Peter of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secondus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus, Trophimus of Asia. That's quite the traveling companions. These people are from all over, Thessalonica, from Derby, from Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but while we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, the Jewish feast of unleavened bread, in five days we joined them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So Paul has made his way up here to the Macedonian coast, and now he's sailed here to this, what's actually the ancient city of Troy, right? The Greek name Troas. He sailed to to this, and he says they stayed there for a week. Now, a kind of interesting thing happens. Um, It's really funny, the incidences that Luke records, because he records some things that you just sort of scratch your head and say, why is that in there? And uh, what happens in Troas, we don't know much about Paul's week there, but we do know that a guy named Eutychus fell out of the window because Paul was preaching too long. Um, I'll try not to do that. Fortunately, there are no windows here for you to fall out of, at least not that you would get hurt. Verse 7 says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, he was ready to leave the next day. He spoke to them, and he continued his message until about midnight. So some of you might be inclined to think that this preacher is long-winded, but I guarantee you'll be out of here by midnight. It says, There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, And in a window, a certain young man named Eutychus, right, was sinking into a deep sleep. And he was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But when Paul went down, he fell on him and embracing him and said, don't trouble yourselves. I love that. Don't be disturbed. The guy just fell out of a three-story window. All is well. His life is yet in him. Now, when he had come up and broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, this was just like a minor interruption in the sermon. Even until daybreak, he departed, and they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted, probably his parents, if he was like a teenager or something. 
Luke doesn't tell us if, if Eutychus actually died, and this is a supernatural event where he's been raised from the dead, or if he, they thought he had died, like he took a very serious fall and he was maybe knocked out, and Paul revives him. We don't know exactly, but the point is, is that I love how this, what we would regard as a very significant event is just sort of passed over as a mild interruption in the preaching, the long-winded preaching of Paul. Oh, yeah, 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 there was a guy that fell out of a three-story window. Don't, he was resurrected, and then he kept preaching. It was just so cute. I love the way that Luke addresses it. Well, that's just it. That's the only event that Luke relates to us is taking place in Troas. Paul now decides to walk down to Asos while the rest of his companions sail, sail there. He then, they get to, together and sail together. He walks a little bit here and they sail down to Miletus. Let's just read that here beginning in verse 13. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos. They're intending to take Paul on board for he had given orders intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us in Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. And we sailed from there, and the next, day we came opposite, the next day we came opposite Chios. The day, the following day we arrived in Samos and stayed at Trogillium, and the next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was in a hurry to be at Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. So, the last time we ended, we were here. In this very theater, I thought I would take an aerial view, or not take it, but find an aerial picture of the, the famous theater in Ephesus so that you could have an idea of the size of this theater. This is where we ended last week. And in those few short verses, Paul has traveled over several months up to the Macedonian coast, across to Philippi. He has sailed down, and now he's arrived in Miletus, which is a little coastal village just south of Ephesus. He doesn't go to Ephesus because he says he's in a hurry. He's already spent two and a half years there, and he doesn't want to go back because he knows there's going to be problems, situations, circumstances that will almost certainly detain him. And so he makes a very strategic move, and a move that's actually going to become very sad, very poignant, and very mournful. He invites the leaders of the church in Ephesus. Now, just to give you a feel for the scope of how long Paul was in Ephesus, Paul spent more time in Ephesus than any other church in all of Acts, more time than in Corinth, more time than any of the other churches in Galatia, even more time than in Antioch and Jerusalem. So this is like Paul's home church. Now just think about how much of a hurry he must have been in. But as we're going to discover, he wasn't just in a hurry. He had a very specific message, a message that people were going to regard as very difficult, very mournful, and very sad. And so he didn't want to go back to those familiar places, those familiar roads. You might remember... Last week, we talked about Paul lecturing for two years in a little school called the School of uh, Tyrannus. He didn't want to go back there. He didn't want to see his former students, not because he didn't love them, but because he knew that he would be detained. And Paul, at this point, is aware that he is on a mission that's going to take him back to Jerusalem and ultimately to Rome. Paul is on his way to Rome. Now, what Paul does not yet know is that he is going to die in Rome. Paul believes that he's going to go to Rome to solicit money or finances because he tells us in the book to the Romans, he's actually on his way to Spain. Now, for us, Spain seems like it's just sort of a hop, jumping away from Jerusalem and, and Italy. But in fact, um, Spain was the outermost edges of the world at the time. For, for Paul's thinking and Paul's culture, to go to Spain was to go just as far as people would responsibly go. And Paul says, hey, I'm on my way to Spain. But your Bible does not contain a letter of Paul to the Spanish church. 
There is no letter of Paul to the, to the church in Barcelona. Right? There could have been. But Paul is going to die in Rome. And Paul, I think, even now is beginning to sense the storm is forming and there are dark clouds on the horizon in place after place, city after city, synagogue after synagogue where Paul has been traveling through his missionary journeys. He has met resistance. He has met difficulty. He has met persecution. And he knows that the grapevine is filled with frustration and antagonism and hostility and even hatred for Paul. And so Paul is beginning to read the handwriting on the wall. He knows that if and when he returns to Jerusalem, which is where he's headed, that it could begin to spell difficulty for him in his ministry. Paul has spent a whole lot of time in and around Asia, Phrygia, Syria, and Pamphylia. Now he is wanting to head to the western part of the Roman Empire where he will begin this ambitious missionary journey to the uttermost parts of the world, to Spain and perhaps even beyond. Okay? So Paul, in a strategic move, invites the leaders of the Ephesus church, the Ephesian church, to come down and meet with me here. Unfamiliar ground. I don't want to be walking those familiar streets. I don't want to sit back in the school of Tyrannus and be emotionally... You're going to see Paul is very emotional here. Right? Luke, who we've already mentioned before, sees Paul as his spiritual hero. Jesus is his savior, but Paul is his hero. Luke records Paul as very vulnerable and even crying repeatedly in Acts chapter 20. As I said, it's the most human portrait that we have of Paul. The typical picture that we have of Paul is of him running here and he's there and he's preaching and he's getting stoned and he's baptizing and he's having visions and people are being healed. Okay, if that's Paul on fast forward, Acts 20 is Paul slowing down in a very human, very poignant even mournful moment with a church that he loves as much as he loves himself. He's in Ephesus. Well, the last time Paul was in Ephesus, you will remember that two of his traveling companions were drugged into this very amphitheater. This amphitheater was built in about the third century before Jesus. And so it's hundreds of years old by the time that Paul arrives there. And all of the people began to chant... Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis. Because it was perceived that the attendance at the various festivals were low and the purchasing of the souvenirs had decreased because of the preaching of this Paul. And, and Paul might have factored in, certainly the preaching of the gospel could have factored into the decline that was taking place at the temple there in Ephesus. But, but it was being blamed on Paul and his preaching. It was being blamed on Christianity. And Paul sensed, hey, I need to get out of here. So he goes away for a few months up to the Macedonian coast. He's come back, and he doesn't himself go back to Ephesus. But let's remind ourselves of what had taken place there. There were hundreds and thousands of people who were clamoring for blood. They wanted someone to pay for the financial difficulty that the, that the city of Ephesus was undergoing. They were angry. They were mad. They were stirred up. And they couldn't find Paul, and so they arrested two of his traveling companions. And they're just ready to tear these guys to bits. And you will remember in Acts 19 that the town clerk came in. The town clerk comes in, and he, he made this fantastic and fantastically revealing statement in Acts chapter 19, verse 37. I'll just remind you of it. You can look there with me if you'd like. The town clerk quiets the mob. He quiets the, the anger. And he starts to speak some common sense into the otherwise volatile situation. 
He says, you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. These guys have not been blaspheming Diana. They've not been stealing from your temples. If anybody has a case against them, let them go to the courts. This is not the way, he says, to deal with the situation. Verse 38, therefore, if Demetrius, that was the silversmith that was particularly chagrined and upset with the preaching of Paul, the town clerk says, hey, look, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring their charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it will be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the last time we were in Ephesus, we're in the midst of a very difficult, very, very tense and hostile situation that fortunately was diffused by the voice of common sense. The t- town clerk sort of said, hey, look, you got a problem with these guys, with Paul, bring it to the courts. But as for this assembly, it's over, it's done. And they all just sort of quietly dismissed. The thing didn't go out with a bang, it went out with a whimper, right? Paul is now returned, not right back to Ephesus, but this is a very important point. The Greek word theatron, theatron, it's no surprise, not difficult to guess what English word we might derive from that Greek word. What is it? Theater, theater. And Paul will use that word theater only once in his ministry, one time. Only one time does Paul ever use the Greek word theatron. And the other two times that it's used, it's only used a total of three times in the New Testament. Two of them are in Acts 19, where it says that Paul's companions were thrown into the theater, into the theater. Now, you might remember that I told you that this happened sometime in and around A.D. 53, right? A.D. 53. But Paul would actually write a letter to another church, a church called Corinth, a church in Corinth, the people of Corinth. And I want you to keep your finger here in Acts 19 and go look at the only place where Paul uses this word, theatron. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Keep your finger here because we are going to return. It'll be really easy to find because you're in Acts. The next book is Romans and the next book is 1 Corinthians. So this will be really easy to find. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, when Paul is writing this letter... This is happening within months and not more than a year to a year and a half of that very tense, hostile, difficult event in Ephesus when all the people were clamoring for someone to pay. And Paul is remembering that. All the people gathered around and here the Christians on trial. Here his traveling companions with a lot of long fingers, a lot of angry long fingers pointed at Paul and his companions saying, hey, Somebody's going to pay for the economic downfall of our area. Somebody's going to pay, and we think it's you guys. We think you're the ones. Paul's remembering this event. And he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, these words. For I think that God has displayed us. What an interesting thing to say. God has displayed believers, he says. I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. Oh, he's clearly thinking of the experience in Ephesus. We're on display, the apostles, the carriers of the gospel message, men condemned to death. Now you know he's speaking about it, because look at what he says next. For we have been made, and my Bible says, a spectacle. 
to the world, both to angels and to men. We have been made a spectacle. The Greek word is theatron. We are on display, Paul says. We are on display as men condemned to death. We are a theater that is being watched by men. And no doubt, as Paul is writing that, he is remembering the very scene. You might remember when Paul's travel companions were down at the bottom of that theater and the, and the crowd was, was calling for their heads, so to speak. Paul was somewhere outside and he wanted to go in there. Remember, Paul was saying, oh, let me get in there. I'll straighten it out. And, and tra Paul's traveling companion said, are you crazy? No, wait a minute. We'll answer that question for you. You are crazy. We're not letting you go in there because in Paul's very optimistic and ambitious mind, you know, that's a, that's a ready-made evangelistic meeting right there. Just go on in and start preaching the truth. And Paul's travel companions just effectively, you know, in rugby-like fashion, prevented him from being able to do it. He said, no, you're not going in there, Paul. You are not going in there. And Paul, no doubt, is remembering that scene, the clamoring of the people. Remember that, that Luke says that they shouted for two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And at one point, one of Paul's travel companions tried to speak, but when they noticed that he spoke with an accent and that he was Jewish, they just kept chanting. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. This is not a group of people that's ready to be reasoned with. Right? So Paul's remembering this and he says, Ah, we're on display. We're in the theater. And people are watching. And angels are watching. We are made a theatron. We're a cinema. In modern parlance, we would say, we're a movie. We're a movie. We're on display. Now here's the remarkable thing. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 would write these words. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for how many people? For all people. I urge that you pray for everybody the high and the low in society, for kings and for those in authority. Well, what should we be praying for, Paul, specifically? He says that we may live, what is that word right there? Peaceful, and what's that word? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Paul is writing to young Timothy, and he says, Timothy, make sure you pray. Tell the churches to pray. Tell the believers to pray. Tell everybody to pray. To pray for everybody from the lowest to the highest. And when they're praying for kings and when they're praying for people in authority, may they pray specifically for this, that they can live quiet and peaceable lives in holiness and godliness. Simply put, that they can live a simple Christian life. Now watch this. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, notice that I've put two different sections there in italics. The first section, hey, pray that we can lead quiet and peaceable lives. That's the first thing Paul says. And the second phrase there that I've placed in italics is where he says, because God wants everybody to come to know the truth. Well, in the context of what Paul is saying is, he's saying that the way that people will come to know the truth is because of these other people that are leading quiet peaceable lives in all holiness and godliness. Pray that, that circumstances aren't 
persecuting. Pray that circumstances aren't hostile. Pray that circumstances aren't, aren't out to, to get us and to persecute us. Pray that we can just live our lives, our day-to-day, that we can be walking with the Savior day by day without opposition, without hostility, without hatred. Just let's pray that the leaders can create a social situation where we can just be who we are, and by that, people will come to believe in Christ. This is exactly what we encounter in Acts chapter 20, where on full display is going to be Paul's insistence that it's the ordinary, day-to-day, simple living of Christian people that is the most effective way to communicate the gospel to an unbelieving, sometimes hostile, and certainly um, a world that is suspicious. That's the world we live in today. That could easily be 2014 in Australia. Easily be. Don't be obnoxious. Don't unnecessarily be placing yourself over and against the prevailing culture. Remember when the town clerk stood up and said, hey, these guys haven't been tearing down your culture. They've not been tearing down your city. They've not been tearing down your goddesses. And they've not been tearing down your temples. In other words, they've been living quiet, peaceable lives. And nobody disagreed. These are just ordinary people. Living, well, look at this. One of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Ellen White, said it this way. A kind, courteous Christian is the, what are those next two words? Is the most powerful. I want you to say those two words with me. Is the most powerful. A kind, courteous Christian is the most powerful argument that can be produced in favor of Christianity. Not an eloquent sermon. Not a, you know, gob-smacking, you know, jaw-dropping miracle. No. The most persuasive argument For the truthfulness of the Christian faith is a kind and courteous Christian. To put it in the words of Paul, Christians who are leading simple, quiet, and peaceable lives in all holiness and godliness. Now look at Acts chapter 20. And here we are just to remind ourselves, we're in Miletus. The Ephesian elders have made their way south to this little coastal city. I want you to imagine today that you are in that meeting. Pretend like you're one of the leaders of the Ephesian church. You know Paul and you love Paul. Paul has spent two and a half years with you. Paul might have baptized your son. He might have baptized your daughter. He might have performed the wedding at which your your brother-in-law... Paul is a part of your life and ministry. He's your pastor. You love this guy. And you're a little confused as to why he doesn't come. I mean, you want to have him over. You You want him to see your new nephew's been born. You want him to come, but he hasn't come. He's invited the church to meet him in a city to the south. And you're confused. Now, you've heard that he's in a hurry, but it strikes you as maybe a little rude that Paul hasn't come, a little inconsiderate. I mean, why why not come? I want you to pretend that you're an Ephesian elder. You're an Ephesian, the Greek word is episkopos. You're a leader in the Ephesian church, and you've been invited to come to this meeting with Paul. And you're, you're anxious to see Paul, but you're maybe just slightly perturbed that you're having to go to another town to see somebody that should be visiting you, right? So just imagine that. Now, let's go read what happens. We're in Acts chapter 20, and we are going to see Luke's portrait and painting of Paul at his most human, right? This is Paul without a suit and tie, 
This is not preaching persecuted, you know, insatiable, inexhaustible Paul. Peripatetic Paul. No, this, this is a different Paul. Let's go read it. Verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to them, he said, I want you to notice the first thing that he says. There you are in that assembly. And Paul opens his mouth and he says, you know, you know. He could have looked at people who would have known their names. You, you know. He could have said, Katie, you know. Seen, you know. Mike, you know. Jeffrey, you know. He, could have, he would have known their names. Right? Mike, you know. Jared, you know. Josh, you know. Andrew, you know. He, would have, he, he knew their names. And look at what he says. You know from the first day that I came to Asia, modern Turkey, in what manner I have lived among you. He could look those people square in the eye and said, you know how I've lived. You know how I've carried myself. You know how I've conducted myself. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed to you and taught you publicly. I went from that, I went to your house. Jenny, I was in your house. And, and Amanda, I was in your house. And Todd, I was in your house. And he says, I went from you house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks about turning toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. That's an interesting phrase. At this point, Paul is a free man. But the confession that he goes bound in the Spirit is a foreshadowing of the fact that he is under some compulsion to go. Just let... Try to be there in Ephesus that day and, and feel the poignancy of this moment when Paul says, I am bound by the Spirit to go to... Bound? Fettered? Shackled? I am bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Paul, as we've already said, the storm clouds are gathering, and Paul is well aware that much popular opinion among the Jewish leadership is against him. He's becoming an unsafe man, both as far as some of the Roman leaders are concerned and certainly the Jewish. Verse 23, except the Holy Spirit has testifies in every city, saying that the chains and tribulations await me. Paul says, when I go to town after town, people say, Paul, if you keep living like this, if you keep talking like this, if you keep preaching like this, you're going to be viewed by, as an agitator. Now, you have to remind yourself that the Jews at this time in history are living in a vassal role under Rome, right? This is the Greco-Roman world, and the Jews are given a little rope with which to live out their cultural, religious life. But the Romans, the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, the, Rome is insistent that nobody steps out of line. There will be peace as long as it's on Roman terms. So anything that's perceived as agitating, the Romans would not have wanted to hear about 25,000 screaming angry people in the Ephesian theater ready to take somebody's head off. This, this doesn't bode well. And Paul, in town after town, whether he's in Derby or Lystra, or where, in, in place after place, this guy is getting a reputation as a rabble-rouser. And Paul says, you know that's not true. You know the life I've lived. But in every city I go to, people say, Paul, if you keep living like this, and especially if you go to Jerusalem, it's going to be chains that await you there. Verse 24. 
but none of these things move me. Oh, what a courageous man. What a brave man. What an unmovable man. I'm not moved. Nor do I count my life as dear to me so that I may finish my race with joy. This week, as I was reading through this, it dawned on me that Paul does not use the, in, the definite article, the race, so that I might finish the race. No, 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 no. He uses the possessive, the personal possessive, so that I would finish my race. And it dawned on me, David, what's your race? Everybody in this auditorium is living the same life in the sense that it's a human life, right? Most of us live geographically in and around the same area, southern end of the Gold Coast. There might be some visitors here today. But, but in the most real sense, every one of us in this room has been called to live a different life. I've not been called to be a mother, right? I've been called to be married and to, to be the husband of Violetta and the father of Landon and Jabel. That's my race. Jared has his race. Alex and Amina have their race, something that they've been called to. What's the race? What's, a, what's the thing that God has called you to? And whatever it is, I pray that you will meet it with the equanimity and the passion and the conviction that Paul does. He says, I, I don't count my life as dear to me. My race. That's between me and God. I want to run my race. Woo! Don't go running somebody else's race. That's what's happening right now to my own boy, my 13-year-old boy. He's not with me here today. Uh, my wife and my two boys are up picking up my nephew, my 19-year-old nephew who's coming to live with us for the next several months. And, and uh, we are on the receiving end of, an, of a teenager who's you know, beginning to spread his wings and, and go and see the world. And I think as a parent, this is a terrifying thing. When your teenagers are beginning to find their role and their career and, and what they're going to be and who they're going to marry and, and what they're... My, my appeal to you as parents is to guide, to direct, to encourage, sometimes to warn, but we have to at some point let our children figure out what their race is and to run their race. It reminds me of an old sad saying that I read from Mark Twain, the famous American author. And he said these poignant words. Somebody had asked him about his dreams and aspirations. Mark Twain, you're one of the greatest writers. You're this and this and this. You must feel so satisfied, so deeply satisfied with your accomplishments. And his, he remarked this. He said, oh, my dreams and ambition for my life, he said, have not been realized. But my father's have. Right? I'm living the life my dad wished he'd lived. No, don't do that to your kids. Let them live their life. And Paul here, he says, I finished my race. The thing to which God had called me finished my race. And look at this. The rest of verse 24, and I've done it with joy. Not with a morose, sad, mournful, you know, attitude that was primarily about duty and responsibility the classic ascetic Christian who denies himself all worldly pleasures and just lives the... He says, he says, I've done it with joy. Man, I've had a great life. And the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. He says, verse 25, Indeed, I know now that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, you will... And they must have almost fainted when they heard this. 
you will never see my face again. What? How do you know that? Paul's already told us that in city after city, there's been prophets that have said, if you continue living like this, you continue acting like this, you continue to follow God's course for your life, you will be bound. And so Paul says, I'm bound by the Spirit. And I have news for you. This is why I didn't want to go to your towns. It's why I didn't want to go back to the school of Tyrannus. This is it. This is goodbye. I'm catching a ship tomorrow morning. You'll never see me again. Just feel the weight of that. Verse 25, 26. Therefore I testify to you that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. He's now passing the, I would say baton, wouldn't you say baton? Isn't that the Australian way, the baton? I love you, the way you guys say certain things I love. Like, like I say pattern, you say patten. I don't even know what that is. But he's passing the baton, right? He's saying, hey look, I raised up this church, I married you, I married you, I baptized you, I baptized you. I preached to you, I've stayed in your house, I've eaten your food, I was sick in your bed. You know, he, he, he's, and he says, You'll, you won't see me again. And now he's turning over. He's passing the baton to, to the leaders of the church in Ephesus and he says, you live like I've lived. You know how I've lived. You live like that. Therefore, take heed to yourselves, I'm in verse 28, and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit... I'm in verse 29, I've already read that. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among your own selves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Verses 29 and 30 require hours of exposition that we don't have this morning. But for those of you that are astute students of prophecy, I can let you know that Paul is saying what he's saying in verses 29 and 30 based on the great prophecies of Daniel. Paul knows that trouble will come to the Christian church. He knows because he's written about it in 2 Thessalonians. He's, he's well familiar with what's going to happen to the Christian church in the wake of the death of the apostles. And so he says, I know it's not going to be easy, but I'm pleading with you, be true shepherds. Live like I have lived, with humility, with kindness, quiet, peaceable lives. Verse 31, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone, night and day, with tears. I was with you for almost three years, and you know how much time I spent crying. Verse 32, So now, brethren, I commend to you God, and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Paul was clearly a simple man, which is interesting because he transported a lot of money. He was continually collecting offerings and transporting money, and Paul lived a purposefully and intentionally simple life so that nobody could say, hey, that's a nice new suit you got, Paul. It's a good-looking car you're driving. No. In numerous places in Paul's letter, he would say, you know that if I wanted, I could live off of the money that I'm getting for other people. I, I deserve that money. But Paul, we know, was a tent maker. He was what Australians would call a tradie. He, was, he, wasn't, a, he wasn't a, you know, tie-wearing, preaching, traveling around the world in his personal jet evangelist. This guy's a tradie, making tents from place to place, 
working as much as he had to work in order to put food on the table, but mainly to preach the gospel. He's a simple person, and he says, you know, I didn't want your gold, I didn't want your silver, I didn't want any of that. No one can charge covetousness to me. Verse 34, yes, you yourselves know that these hands, I can just see Paul holding up gnarled hands, trady hands. You know that these hands have provided for my necessities and those who are with me. You know. In another place, if time allowed, I could take you there, but I'll have mercy on you. Paul actually writes to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, when I was with you, I didn't take any of your stuff, and I was as gentle as a nurse is with her children. I just lived among you. I, I paid my own way. I wasn't a mooch. You guys have a word for that. We call it mooch. When somebody lives off of somebody else. What is it? Scab. Bludger. Bludger. Right. Paul says, that wasn't me. You know me. I was an honest worker. I was a hard worker. Now, verse 35. This is the verse I really want to draw your attention to. This is hugely significant. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. That's why I'm wearing my address shirt today. He says, you know that what I've been teaching you, I've been living the gospel. That your main call as leaders, he says, is to support the weak. You might remember back, Jesus had said to Peter, way back after Peter's denial, he had said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And he said, do you love me? And Peter said, you know I love you. And he said, take care of my little lambs. Take care of the little ones. I tell you, it's a real honor to teach the teen Sabbath school class here. Some of them are lambs and some of them are Wolves in lambs' clothing. <laughs> They're all quiet as lambs, I can assure you of that. But I like the, I just love being a part of the, 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 the with, with Sam and Katie and Carl, I love being a part of the, the, the beginners. And, the, and this week we've been doing, these last few weeks we've been doing nominating committee. And when it comes time for nominating committee, many people look with almost scorn. Oh. And it is, it is a time investment, isn't it? It takes time to call and to de- deliberate and to talk. And, but I tell you, something that has impressed me deeply as we've been doing this nominating committee is that it takes just ordinary people to make a church run. Somebody's got... If, if we're going to eat after church, who's going to oversee that? We'll get Adele to do that. Well, wait a minute. We want to come and I want to go sit in a class. So who's going to take care of my children? Oh, we'll get Linda Marshall to take care. Oh, who's going to... We, we need just ordinary people that rise to the occasion and, and just and, and live out the life of the church. Paul says, you know that the most important thing, take care of the weak. And then he says, this is really interesting. He says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But did you know that Jesus doesn't say that? I challenge you to find that in the, in the Gospels. You won't find it. I was having this conversation with Josh this morning. You will not find that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's never there. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus never said it. Well, he said it, Paul says, but he didn't say it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We have no record of Jesus saying this. So we don't know how it was that Paul knew that Jesus said this. Maybe it was something personal that Paul had said, Jesus had said to Paul. The closest thing that we have is in Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. But Jesus never said it's more blessed to give than to receive. But Paul says that Jesus said it. Maybe there was another fragment of some gospel or some letter that that Paul was aware of that we don't have in our Bible. We don't know. But the point is, is that for Paul, and don't miss this, I'm going to close on this point. For Paul, this is the embodiment of the whole Christian message. 
See, Paul not only preached the gospel, he lived the gospel. And the gospel is about giving. The gospel is about serving. The gospel is about looking out for the weak. And Paul says, I carried your money, but I never took any of it. I delivered the money to those that were in famine, to those that were in difficulty. But look at the clothes I'm wearing. You know that these hands made tent after tent. You will not see my face again. And I want to be clear, in my absence, when Paul is passed, and he doesn't yet know that his head is going to be severed from his body by Nero. He doesn't know that. But he knows when, when people talk about Paul in my absence, you know, I want you to, to, to know that the guy that came and preached Jesus here didn't just preach with his mouth some highfalutin, university-driven theology. No, 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 no. I showed you it's more blessed to live a life of service and of ministry and of giving than to be constantly taking. Whoo! And in that, he encapsulates the whole Christian message and the message of his own life. Let's wrap this up. And when he said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all, and they all wept freely. They fell on Paul's neck, they kissed him, and sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, they walked him to the ship. And Paul, who had become, who had become synonymous with the churches of, of Asia, he says, you'll see me no more. I'm leaving. I'm gone. N.T. Wright, in his commentary, Acts for Everyone, says, so here we see Paul in a different mode, vulnerable, meditative, steady in his faithful perseverance, but with no hint of triumphalism. In other words, he's not patting himself on the back. Paul is no tall poppy. He's telling the truth. He's not concerned for his reputation as much as he's concerned for the reputation of the gospel. No hint of triumphalism, of carrying all before him, sweeping through the world in a blaze of glory. No, that's not this Paul. He is quiet, not combative. He is reflective, not argumentative. It is as though we have finally found Paul. Here we are in Acts chapter 20, and it's like we finally find the guy. No longer running around in a blur, persecuted here and there. No, sitting for long enough to have Luke paint his portrait. And what a portrait it is. I want to say this. I'm going to invite you to come on up, Josh, and get ready to sing our final song. I was just talking with a friend about this recently, that life is made up mostly of seemingly insignificant and ordinary moments. Isn't that true? You think about the big moments in your life, right? The day you got accepted to university. Mitchell mentioned that today in Sabbath school class. Exciting. The day you graduated from university. You know, the, well, the day you were married. The birth of your first child. Okay, there are big events in your life. The birth of your second child. The day your first child got married, the, your first grandchild, you know, these are the big events in life. But between those events, you spend a lot of time brushing your teeth, <laughs> taking showers, washing the dishes, driving to and fro, sitting at the desk or building houses, whatever it is that you do. Between those peaks of the high moments in our lives, there's a whole lot of just ordinary day-to-day -day living, right? But here's the amazing thing about that. It is in these ordinary moments where extraordinary people are made and great lives are lived. It's in those ordinary day-to-day. -day. And Paul says, you know how I was. I wasn't some highfalutin, tall, poppy preacher. I worked side by side with you. I was a tradie. And he says, but in those details of my life, I tried to live by this one principle. 
It's better to give than to receive. Hmm. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, something that I frankly cannot say. I'm your pastor. It's an honor for myself to be your pastor. I don't think Jared would say it if we invited him up here, but he might want to jump up and say it if you want to, Jared. Paul said, keep putting into practice all that you learned and received from me. I could say that. Hey, practice what I'm preaching. Everything you have heard from me, and look at these next four words, and saw me doing. That's, that's a tough thing to say. Live like I've lived. How many of you would be comfortable saying that to somebody? Live like I've lived. Paul was. There's a vulnerability here. There's a transparency here. There's an openness because Paul had not only preached the gospel, he had lived it. He had embodied it. He had embodied a life of giving and not taking, of serving and not always needing to be served. You might remember several sermons ago, I said that if you replace the I with we, illness becomes wellness. And that's why we need a church family, friends. We need a church community because it takes a lot of ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Right? Ordinary people living ordinary lives, day to day, living the life. Right? Seems pretty banal, pretty ordinary. We're always looking forward to something, aren't we? Looking forward to vacation. Looking forward to whatever it is. But, but life is being lived right here today with this group of people in the ordinary moments of life. And when we get together, a bunch of ordinary people, and do extraordinary things, illness with the I becomes wellness with the we. I leave you with this statement. A kind and courteous Christian is the most powerful argument that can be produced in favor of Christianity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we stand in awe of the work that you can do in ordinary people. And Paul was an ordinary person turned into an extraordinary vessel. And Father, we're a whole bunch of Pauls in here today. Ordinary people saved and redeemed by an extraordinary God. Father, there we were on the side of that dark highway. We're so thankful that Jesus didn't drive on by. In each life, in each circumstance, in each situation, He stooped in to our life, and He gave us a new life. Your life, my life, my race, your race, the unique life to which we have been called. Father, today the prayer of our heart is that we would run that race with the banner that we are carrying that says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Father, in the big and grand and monumental moments of life, may we live that way, few though they be. But Father, in the day-to-day humdrum, the the seeming banality and boredom of day-to-day life, Father, may we see that these are the moments where ordinary people become extraordinary people and where great lives are lived. Help us, Father, to do what we do with excellence, with generosity, with compassion. Help us to be truly human, for you have created us to be this. In Jesus' name, let the Kingscliff Church and all the visitors and attendees say with me, Amen. God bless you all.